Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. Six verse one. If you have your Bibles here this morning, really encourage you to take notes, write this down, um, study it out, get it into your spirit. You know, you, you need a physical Bible. You need one with pages. Everybody that has a Bible with pages, just lift it up for me real quick this morning. Come on, come on. God bless you, old school faithful people. You know what the problem is with having a Bible on your phone is that if your battery dies and you need a word, you're stuck. Right? You you need something with pages. I encourage you to scribble in your Bible, make notes, write it down, and go on this journey with us. Revelation 6 verse 1 says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seals. So now Jesus, sitting on the throne, opens the first seal. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked and behold a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. He came out conquering and to conquer. We're going to look this morning at what some of these horses of war. A horse is an animal of war. In in the Bible, different animals had different types of significance for what their roles were and what they symbolized, but a horse always symbolized war, and there is a shaking that is coming, and and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Um, But before we get into that, let's quickly pray. Father, we just thank you this morning that you speak to our hearts, that you reveal yourself to us, Lord, that, that everything that is in our lives that is not of you can be shaken this morning, Lord, that it can be shaken and that that which is of you, the unshakable kingdom, will remain within us. Thank you, God, for how you're raising us up as a community, teaching us through your spirit, telling us about yourself, and causing us to trust in you in greater measure. We give you all the glory for that and for this time that we have together. We pray that you speak to us through your spirit in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. So I don't know if you remember back to the days where people used to watch the Comrades Marathon. Anybody ever watch the Comrades? Like, actually, we would watch the whole race. It was a thing, like 80s, 90s. It went along with Red Nose Day. Anybody remember Red Nose Day, right? At school, all of us bought red noses. All the kids, you would wear them on Red Nose Day. And eventually, when they ran out of kids, they put them on cars. And, um, and we all had big red noses on our cars. I cannot even remember what it was in support of But Red Nose Day and the Comrades Marathon always went together, and it was like the era of Bruce Fordyce and and all those great runners, and and we would switch the TV on on a Saturday morning and just have it in the background the whole day. We would watch people run, right? That's what we would do back in the day for fun, because we didn't have social media, so we watched people in short shorts running over hills. (laughs) It was what we did for fun. And, um, and I remember watching the comrades, and obviously as it got closer to the end, it was more and more interesting to watch. But, but for me, always the most heart-wrenching thing was the cutoff posts that they had. Have you ever seen this? That at a certain point, if you hadn't reached a certain uh, milestone at that point or, or, or a yardstick at that point, they would stop you and say, you're not going to make it. It doesn't matter how much you run from here on out. You, it's better that you stop running now because um, you're going to get there and everyone's going to have gone home, right? No celebration for you. And the most heartbreaking one was if you didn't run 81 kilometers within the first 11 hours with just nine kilometers to go, they would stop you. I mean, if if I've run 81 kilometers, a tank isn't stopping me, right? I'm like, I don't care if I'm running in alone. I'm finishing this race. 
But I remember they would stop people and then they did the cruelest thing ever. They would have interviewers from top sport come with microphones. How do you feel? What do you mean, how do I feel? I just ran 81 kilometers and you're sending me home. And I remember them going to one person saying, would you try again next year? And the guy looked at the interviewer like, you have got to be, I'm never coming back. I tried it once, I'm so disappointed, and I'm never coming back. And I think to this day, I still pray for that guy for healing in his heart, because it's just heartbreaking. As a youth pastor, I used to organize six-a-side soccer tournaments in the community and just invite a bunch of kids and see how many kids we could get over to come and play soccer. And I remember one team, they started late because the teams arrived at the field late, and they thought they had a certain amount of time to go to play. And at a certain point, the final whistle blew, and these guys were furious. They ran over to me as the organizer, and they were complaining, said we needed a rematch because we thought we had more time but then the final whistle went. I said, but you guys started late. And so instead of having 10 minutes per game or per half, you only had five minutes a half. And, and they said, but all that while, we could have won the game. We were passing the ball around and just kind of moving the ball instead of attacking because we thought we still had time. And as I read Revelation 6, this just came to my heart and to my mind because one of the strategies of the enemy for us is to make us think that time will just always continue as it always has that there will be no time of judgment, that there will be no time of retribution, that there will be no time where God says, right, my time for salvation, for people to repent and turn to me has come to an end, and now it is the great white throne of judgment that we read about in, uh, in Revelation, and, and there will be a time of reckoning, ultimately. We kind of fall into the trap of thinking that everything's just always going to carry on the way it is now, and, and in that vain, the church loses its sense of urgency. Church becomes about comfort. Church becomes about just hanging out. Church becomes about good coffee. And we love all those things, don't get us wrong. But there's a mission. There's an urgency because time will not continue forever. There is a, a shaking that comes and, and, and the closer we come to the time of, of Jesus' return and the closer we come to all the things that we can expect through the book of Revelation that's been spoken of, the closer we come to it, the more of that shaking exists because God is ultimately removing the things that people trust in in order to bring more people into the kingdom through repentance and through faith in him. And so things get worse before they get better because it's often as we are shaken that we realize our need for a savior. Matthew 25, and I'm, I'm gonna read a few scriptures today, so please excuse me for the pace of this message um, you can, if, you, if you miss some of it, you can download the recording and go through it slower. Maybe you can even slow it down if you have one of those apps. Just slow my voice down a little bit. But I want to read a few verses to you today. Matthew 25, verse 1. Jesus, Jesus talks about this. Exactly what I mentioned now. He tells us a parable in line with this. He says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, this is talking about Jesus' return, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, all of a sudden, here is the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, 
Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, Jesus speaking, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Powerful words from Jesus himself where he says that we've got to live our lives with a glorious expectation that Jesus is coming back, that Jesus is returning, that all things will not just continue the way they always have. This is what faithless people think, that there will be no reckoning, that there will be no time of Jesus' return. And so we, we fall asleep, we become drowsy and we sleep. And when Jesus comes, we find ourselves unprepared to meet him. Those who have faith, those who believe in Jesus, live in an expectation of his coming. Watch, therefore, be ready for Christ's return. Second Peter 3, again, speaks about how our world has turned into They've become very comfortable with mocking God, mocking God's timeline, not understanding that his timeline is actually based on his grace, on his patience, on his love for people. Second Peter 3 verse 3 says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, mocking, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as the way they were from the beginning of creation. They go, come on, since it's just always been the same, you guys keep saying Jesus is gonna come back and everything just keeps on going the same way it always has. But Peter says they, in doing this, they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, of these the world that then existed was deluged, was, was flooded with water and perished. In other words, when they say everything's just carried on, God's not going to judge, God's not gonna come back, there'll never be a reckoning. They forget that once before, God did judge in the time of the flood. And he will again in a different way. So they say that forgetting that God has acted out before. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, not a flood, but fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's like God's like, I'm just gonna delay a little bit longer. I'm just gonna delay a little bit more because I know that today at Anchor Church, somebody is going to receive Jesus. And I don't, wanna, I don't want to have them miss their opportunity. I wanna give more time. And so he's not slow, he's patient. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Are we living as the wise virgins who are awaiting the bridegroom? In lives of, of holiness and godliness, waiting for, and I love this, hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn 
But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Jesus says, this broken world. And you know what's funny? People are like, oh, that's so harsh. God's gonna burn the whole world. But then when there's like sin and, and brokenness and murder and destruction and war in this world, everybody goes, well, where's God? What's, why is he not doing anything? So when God doesn't act, everybody's upset. And when he does act, they go, oh, shame. Now, why did he act? Our world is broken and God knows it. And he's, as the world continues in its sinfulness, he's giving the church the opportunity to reach those who don't know him so that they can come to repentance. And then there will be a time where God will do away with this world as it is now. It will be burned with fire. It will be then renewed and it will be a new heavens and a new earth. An earth in which righteousness dwells without the battles and the, and the sorrow and the pain that we deal with in this world. So people that don't have faith, they say, no, everything's just gonna continue. But it won't. God is going to act. God could have judged the world and its injustice ages ago, but he is patient so that many more may be saved. But this time of salvation and this time of grace and repentance won't continue forever. And this is why, church, our job is important. This is why we started Anchor Church. This is why the church exists, because we have been given the mandate from God, the great commission to go into all the world and to preach the gospel so that those who hear may be baptized and may be discipled and may be raised up and may fulfill the call that God has on their lives. And we don't want to waste a minute worrying about scoffers and mockers and small-minded critics because we have a really important job to do. We have a really important job to do. We're here to hasten the coming. The more we bring souls to Jesus, the sooner we'll see the redemption of all things. And so the Bible says that we're to set our minds on these things, on things above, and live with eternity in mind, with heaven in mind. The strategy of the enemy is to get us distracted, focused on ourselves and our own comforts, and ultimately to fall asleep on the job. Romans 13 verse 11 says, besides this, you know, the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. There's an expectation, there's an urgency within the church, and we have an important mission to fulfill, Anchor Church. We have an important call from God, and it includes every single one of us. That's why we do the Discover Your Destiny course. You need to go and find out how God has designed you so that you can get busy living in the calling for which God has called you, so you can start making a difference as we pioneer forward. Do we care about people? Do we care about souls? Do we care about lives? Do we care about the eternal future of families? If we do, then we need to reach our world and we need to build our church. We need to build the church. We need to pioneer as a church. It really, really frustrates me when people have turned their idea of church into their own personal idol. 
Did you realize that people have like a certain model or a certain formula or a certain expression or a certain size, a certain budget? They go, this is how church should be. This is what pastors should do. This is what the worship should sound like. This is what the formula of a service should look like. And they turn that into their own idol. Some people come to us and say, the church should just remain small. It should just always be small. Church shouldn't grow. Why is Anchor Church going to two services? Why are we doing an evening worship service? Why do we want to grow? I have a friend who's a pastor in this city whose greatest challenge right now is his eldership because his eldership are discussing how they need to keep the church small. They've grown too quickly. They've run out of space. They're packing chairs outside the building and there's space to expand, but they're saying, no, no, no. We just want to be a small community church. You only say stuff like that when you've lost sight of things like this. That God has got a calling for the church because the time is running out. In Acts 2 verse 41, on this idea of what church should and shouldn't be, Acts 2, 41 and 47 says, so those who received his word, this is on the day of Pentecost when Peter got up to preach, were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls to the church. 3,000 souls, one day there was only one church in Jerusalem. Instantly mega church. Instantly. And it goes on to say, in verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day. It continued to grow. Imagine if that happened at Anchor Church. Imagine if, if in one day, God added 3,000 people to this church. How many people would be up in arms? Oh, don't like it anymore. It got too big. This is not what I want from church. I've had somebody say to me, large churches are an abomination. <laughs> and my response is, also, is always, well, the church in Ephesus that Timothy pastored at the age of 22, most scholars believe it was 100,000 members. There was only one church in every city, and God was moving. It was revival sweeping across the Gentile nations. So I asked them, was, was that an abomination? No, the church was turning the world upside down. And I'm not necessarily saying that our church has to be one size or another. I'm just saying I'm never going to limit what God wants to do here. I'm never going to put my own human comfort as a lid on top of a move of God where we go, hey God, I know you'd like to reach thousands in this city, but we're just gonna do a little job for you because we feel that's more comfortable for us. That's not the heart, that's not my heart, that's not the heart of our leadership, and that's not the heart of our church because we didn't come here to do something comfortable. We, come here to, we came here to make a difference. They gave everything to the cause. Why did the early church do that? Because they lived in expectation of the coming of Jesus. In Acts 1 verse 11, as Jesus ascended into heaven, it says, while they were gazing into heaven as, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, these were angels, and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go. In other words, hey, 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 stop staring. He's coming back. You've seen it. He's coming back. You've just seen him go. You know he's coming back. Get busy. Get on the mission. Get involved. 
get going. Don't stand here and, and build a memorial to the, to the ascended Jesus. Build a church for the coming Jesus, for the returning Jesus. Go out and make a difference. Stop standing here. We announced last week that we were going to do two services. And like I mentioned, people say, well, why does Anchor want to grow so much? And I just want to ask, what do you mean? People will perish without the message of the gospel. And if we need to do 35 services on a Sunday to reach one more person, we'll do it. We'll do whatever it takes to be faithful to the mission of God. Anchor team, don't worry, we're not doing 35 services, all right? We're not, doing, we're not going there quite yet. People say, why does, why does the church spend money on sound equipment and on, and on building the church and on things? I, I haven't, let me just say this, church, I haven't even begun to spend money yet. I will spend every cent I can scrape together if I need to go to my mother's house and look under the couch for cents. I will spend every cent God puts in my hand to build the church because I'm not messing around. Time is running out. We don't care about money. We just want to use it to reach more people. And we will do whatever we need to do in order to do that. We will, when we're done, I'm hoping that God would put Anchor Church in a place where we have spent billions in reaching our city. God provides for the mission. He can do it in any way possible. He miraculously provides for his church. And we spend all of it to reach more people because we're desperately in love with the vision that God gave us for the people of our city. Healthy accountability is something that we value. It's one of our values, accountability and transparency. But for all the critics out there, whether you're here today or whether you're listening on the recording, please excuse us if we do not spend the next 50 years of our lives explaining ourselves to you because we're just too busy doing what God has called us to do. We're just too focused on reaching our city. There is an urgency here, church. That's if you believe what the Bible says. If you believe it, then let's get on with it. Let's walk in unity. Let's walk in, in, in faith for what God wants to do. So Jesus sits on the throne and, and he breaks the seals. And as he breaks the seal, each seal that breaks is like a, a birth pain and Jesus describes it this way. It's like labor pains coming towards the birth of God's redemption. And so there's an intensification of these contractions predicting and predicating the final judgment and renewal of all things as promised in Scripture. Jesus spoke about this when he was with his disciples. And if you want to cross-reference these Scriptures, um, you can write down Matthew 24, Mark 21, and Luke 13. Matthew 24, Mark 21, and Luke 13. Because all these synoptic gospels, um, they record how Jesus spoke about these birth pains that would come up, and they perfectly line up. So if you take Matthew 24, and you line it up with Revelation 6, you'll see how they, each horse represents something Jesus spoke about. But in Matthew 24, verse 3 to 10, and 13 to 14, just to read this to you quickly, it says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So Jesus had already spoken to the disciples about his return. And Jesus answered him saying, saying, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed 
for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. So persecution of Christianity, we're seeing it in our post-Christian world today. Persecution of Christianity will increase. They will take you and deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So Jesus says there's gonna be birth pains, you're gonna see wars, there's gonna be famine, there's gonna be economic hardship, there's gonna be persecution of Christians. Our world is, we can already see how our world is moving towards this. We're experiencing the birth pains. But Jesus says that he is holding out until the testimony of Jesus has gone out across the world and then the end will come. Everybody will have that opportunity. But in essence, what God does is that the shaking, and I've spoken about, I mentioned this now a few times, but the shaking produces more repentance. So God first has to dismantle what the world currently trusts in. So if there are people that feel like they don't need God because they're so wealthy, you know, they've got their house on the lake in Switzerland and their wooden speedboat. I've always wanted one of those. They look so great. If you've ever been to Italy and Lake Como and seen those wooden speedboats, they're amazing. If they live in mansions and, and on wine estates and with, with boats and, with, and they can travel and they're like, why do I need God? And so God shakes the economic world and they realize your money, your, your trust cannot be in your money and your money won't save you. And so all of a sudden, people come to Jesus. This is part of how God intensifies his efforts so that many more may be saved. He'll bring low earthly peace and wealth and the foundations that people have set up for themselves philosophically. As society has built a philosophy to replace God, God shakes the foundations of those philosophies. Listen to this, Hebrews 12, verse 26, it says once again exactly this. It says, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken will remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. In other words, it goes back to building your house on the rock. We have received an unshakable kingdom and an unchanging person in Jesus, and when we put our faith in him, it doesn't matter how much the world shakes, because we always stand. So be sure to worship God. Be sure to make him the center of your life. As each seal is broken, a horse arrives, a horse symbolizing war, and these horses have been seen before in the book of Zechariah 1 and Zechariah 6, and in both of those books and both of those chapters, the, the horses are sent out to patrol the earth, but now they are given authority, delegated authority to go and, and enact their power over the earth. They're released to conquer. The first horse, as we read, is a white horse, and his rider has a bow and a crown, and this symbolizes military conquest. 
In that time in Rome, and this was written in a Roman era, the Parthians in AD 62 fought a battle against the Romans, and they were specifically known for riding white horses and being very skilled with bows. And for much of the final part of the Roman era, the Parthians terrorized the eastern territories of Rome. And so as this was being read out to those living in the provinces of Rome, they would have immediately thought about the conquerors coming on their white horses with their bows. And this symbolizes that now God is coming to conquer. He is sending out a conquering force to shake the foundations of what people have trusted in. It would have sent shivers down the spine of the hearers who understood this kind of imagery. And so that's the first declaration. God is coming to conquer. Revelation 6 verse 3 says, when he opened the second seal, I heard the sound of a living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Now we see that peace is removed. And there's war that intensifies across the earth. The earthly peace is shaken. And this idea lines up with what Paul writes about in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 6, if you want to again cross-reference 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 6. And what this ultimately says is that the reason why, you know, Eugene Peterson says that to be human is to be at war. We are constantly in conflict. Look at any family, just your, new, your home family. Look at a husband and wife. Look at, a, look at any human relationship. It, we all have got difficulties with resolving conflict. But what essentially it's saying at a global scale, God has restrained the conflict through his grace. But there will come a time where God removes his restraint. And it's not that God causes the war, but that he allows humans to their own devices, the consequence of their own warring mentalities and hearts. And it says this, that there's a, right now God has restrained, we have peace in South Africa because God has restrained those that would want war. But as we get closer to the end times, more and more war will break out and it will cause people to turn to God for help. In essence, God removes the restraint and allows sinful humanity to have its way. And that's one of the birth pains. Revelation 6 verse 5 says, When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. This horse represents economic hardship, famine and economic hardship. The, the scales were an ancient method of, of measuring cost. If you put your, your weight of grain on one side, you would have to me measure that weight on the other side and see how much each kilogram of, of grain would cost. So a quart of wheat or three quarts of barley for a denarius is 10 to 12 times the usual price. We have a very current example of this in Zimbabwe. That is essentially what it's talking about as war intensifies and, and rips a nation apart and there's all these conflicts. Then all of a sudden, you need to take a wheelbarrow of money to go to the store and buy bread if there is any. And so there is a famine or an increase of economic hardship that will come in our world, and we've already started seeing a lot of that as economies that we thought would be solid for years 
are all of a sudden on a tipping point. This is part of the birth pains that we see. And again, it shakes those that have trusted in money. He says, don't touch the oil and wine because it's, God still restrains the economic, the complete economic hardship. It intensifies later on in the book of Revelation, but, but those oil and wine both come from plants that have deep roots, and so it's, it's more the, the grain and, and the wheat and the barley that will be affected. It's more temporary, but it's not a complete famine as yet. Revelation 6, 7 says, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. This pale horse is essentially the color of a corpse. It's death, and death has its inseparable partner, Hades, which is the afterlife without Christ. It is a place of, of, of judgment. And so they go out, and there is authority given over to them in terms of, of life on the earth. This echoes Ezekiel 14.21. In fact, those words are almost a direct quote from Ezekiel 14.21, which were the four dreadful judgments um, that came upon the nation of Israel. And, and it speaks about how death will intensify the intensification of the horrors of this broken world, yet still limited or restrained to a certain extent by God. He says only one-fourth, only a certain amount. Judgment unravels here over time because God still wants people to repent. He still wants them to turn to him. He doesn't just want to come in a flash and wipe it all out. He intensifies it slowly as he redeems so that people individually can turn to him. Our world is very comfortable mocking God, very comfortable mocking Christians, and God is incredibly patient. But as the scroll opens, we see that the judge of heaven and earth will be revealed. Revelation 6 verse 9 says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been killed. This is the voice of the martyrs, and they have a special place at the altar of God. The Bible says that precious in the eyes of the Lord are the death of his saints. And there were people that have gone before us. We are a part of a great story, a great heritage of believers who said that my life is worth less to me than the mission of sharing the good news of Jesus. Those that did not love their lives to death. Oftentimes people will ask you the question, are you willing to die for Jesus? But I wanna ask you a different question today. Are you willing to live for him? Are you willing to live for him? Sometimes it's easy, death can come in a moment, but living for him is a journey, it's a process, it requires commitment. Are you willing to give your life? These had died in the persecution of Rome, of the early Christians, but Christianity to this day remains the most persecuted religion in the world with most studies concluding that between five and 8,000 Christians are killed every single year for their faith. 
Revelation 6, verse 12, my last scripture this morning. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Let me tell you, church, it's tough to read these scriptures <laughs> Sometimes we wish we could just read all the scriptures just just talk about all the nice things. But I wouldn't be preaching the Bible if I wasn't preaching this. And and, and it's so easy to to become moral judges of God. Us judging the creator of morality, putting ourselves ultimately above him. But at the same time, when we find out that somebody has, has, has murdered a child or raped somebody, then we all cry out for what? Justice. God is a righteous judge. But in order to save us from this judgment, he sent his son, Jesus. God's heart is that no one would face that judgment. And the only reason why we would is if we consciously choose to reject the salvation and the grace that God has given us, that his judgment was poured out on Jesus, that Jesus paid the price, that he is the one who tasted the wrath of God. He drank from the cup of the wrath of God and he drank every last sip and then turned the cup over and said, it is finished. And then he said, right, all you need to do is put your faith in me and your judgment would be wiped away. You'd be saved from this judgment. But for those that choose to reject that offer of salvation, there is a time when they will realize their fault and they will recognize that even though they may be generals, even though they may be rich, even though they may be powerful, doesn't matter what position they're in, the call will come out, who can stand? Who can stand? In the day that this prophecy was given for a people who held that the well-ordered movements of the heavenly bodies, the stars and the moon and the sky were a token of God's providential control, the breakdown of this order of stars falling now from the sky would be a grim announcement that the end of the world was at hand. Who can stand? Things won't always continue as they have. Jesus will come as a thief in the night. Are we watchful? Are we prepared? Are we ready? Are we living in light of eternity? Are we using the time we have and every resource at our disposal to share the good news of God's grace Before the judgment comes, let's discern the time and reach the lost. This stirs me up. I know there's a lot to unpack. I have like 30 minutes to try and do it on a Sunday. It's virtually impossible. But I hope that the heart that you can understand today is that God loves people and wants to save them and wants to shake everything else they've created as an idol to trust in 
so that they can turn to him and escape from judgment. The book of Thessalonians tells us that it is not for God's people to face his wrath. We've been saved from that through Jesus. So church, we're on a great mission. We're not messing around. We've got a city to reach. We've got people to love. We've got a gospel to share. And we're gonna do it by the grace of God with everything we have. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me this morning as we pray?